0: So, But we're going to be in Acts 9, uh, 19, verse 11, and then Revelation uh, chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. Matt Thornton is going to come. As he comes, would you stand for the reading of God's Word? Thanks,
1: brother. All right, everybody. First, we're going to read Acts 19, 11. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul. going to move to Revelations 2, 1 through 7. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my namesake, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had had at first. Remember, therefore, from, when you have, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you fir- did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet this you have, you hate the work of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the, par- it, which is in the paradise of God. Amen. Right, you did a good job. You may be seated.
0: Well, you had a tough word in there. There's a lot of tough words in the Word of God, and sometimes it's best just to say it the way you think and know that nobody else is going to know how to pronounce it either, right? All right, so you may be seated. (laughs) And uh, stay in Revelation chapter 2. And the reason we started with one verse in Acts 19 was to bridge or jump over to Revelation because we're going to deviate from the book of Acts to take a closer look at the church at Ephesus and particularly from the perspective of Jesus who years later writes a letter to this church. Now, even right there, I want you to stop and just kind of get your bearings for a moment. Can you imagine, I really want you to imagine this seriously for a moment. If I were to stand up right now and read a letter straight from Jesus to this church at Cornerstone. Can you imagine that? This is what happens with the church at Ephesus. It's going to happen six more times with six other churches. And the letter began this way. This is straight from the lips of Jesus to the ears of the church at Ephesus to the angel of the church in Ephesus right. The one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands says this. Well, who is the angel of the church? The angel of the church most believe, I mean, there's, there's actually a few different um, possibilities, but generally people believe that this is the leader of that church. Uh, it's likely a man named Onesimus by this point. And Jesus, who holds the seven stars, verse 1 if you're looking at it, He holds the seven churches. The seven stars are the seven churches in Asia Minor. Ephesus is one of them, Pergamum. Um, Laodicea and etc. And he walks among these churches who are also called seven golden lampstands. Now I'm, I'm kind of explaining before we really get rolling what verse one is saying, because here we've got a picture of Jesus speaking to this church through its anointed leader, holding that church in his unbreakable grip present in and among his church, but what's he doing? What's he doing? Now, friends, you probably want to look at me for a moment because what Jesus was doing then, he is doing now. And what he was doing is he's examining it. Now, don't let this be fanciful fiction because it's not. Jesus is, by the Spirit of God, by the Holy Spirit, right now, and he is examining Cornerstone Church. And by examining Cornerstone Church, let me tell you what he's not doing. He's not looking at our bylaws. He's not looking at our policy manual. He's not looking at our membership list so much as he's looking at your life and my life. He's examining you He's examining me. And right now he's encouraging you, and you may not even know he's doing that, but he's encouraging you. He's maybe even convicting you if there's something that he sees in you that he is not pleased with. I mean, let's just be honest. How many of us can say quite honestly that there's nothing in me or in you that Jesus is not pleased with? So he may be convicting you. He's changing, transforming you, strengthening you. He's doing that right now, and you may not even know it. Now, that changes everything, doesn't it? Jesus, by the Spirit of God, whether you're online watching this or right here in person, and a lot of you are, he's examining you. And he's saying something that you need to hear. And what you're about to hear with the church at Ephesus is a commendation, a criticism, and a counsel for this church. Now, here we are again. I want you to really think with me. I want you to, I want you to maybe maybe pause for just a moment. And I want you to reflect for a moment. What goes through your mind right now as you understand that Jesus is examining us and he's examining our church and he's evaluating us with a determination to help us grow in obedience and holiness now what's going through your mind even right now now let's get really really real what is Jesus saying to you right now do you know Can you even hear his voice? Why don't you ask him, even while we're going through this message, Lord, would you speak to me right now? Speak to me through your word and let me hear what you are saying. Now listen, if he convicts you, he will give you anesthesia to undergo that kind of surgery. Because he's going to go down deep with his double-edged sword called the Word of God. And he's going to go down deep into your heart, separating motives and thoughts. And if he has to do that, which I think he probably has to for a lot of us, then he's going to give you some anesthesia, his grace. He's going to remind you the whole way. I love you. If you have put your faith in me for your salvation, I'm not condemning you. I'm not angry at you. But there's a cancer in you there's something in you that's robbing you of spiritual health be brave because i'm going to take it out of you can we do that together all right here we go i'm going to show you a accommodation a criticism and a counsel for the church at ephesus and i think it's going to tie back to our own church here we go let's be brave number one jesus gave accommodation To this church now, accommodation is always a positive thing. Here we go. We've got Ephesus, the city that was called the market of Asia. Now, Asia is not the um, the Orient like Japan or China. Asia is Turkey. It's actually modern Western Turkey, Asia Minor. Largely, it's the market city of Asia, Ephesus did, largely because, well listen to this, it's located at the intersection of four main roads. It's along the Caister River that leads to the Mediterranean Sea. So all the shipping of that entire region goes through Ephesus. It's a city of a half a million people. So it's pretty big. They've got an annual month-long spring festival rivaling the Olympics. They've got theater productions. They've got concert halls. Listen to this. They've got a 25,000 person stadium. Did you know that? Did you know the ancient world could build like this? 25,000 people fit in that stadium. The city had bathhouses. They had underground sewers. They had fountains with fresh water. Dominating its landscape was one of the ancient wonders of the world, the temple of Artemis, who was considered the daughter of Zeus. She was a fertility goddess. Took 220 years that's just incredible 220 years to build that temple it's 60 feet high it's 425 feet long 220 feet wide 127 marble columns in this temple 36 of them overlaid with gold and jewels I mean this is an amazing building The worship of Artemis fueled the city's wealth and attracted people all over the ancient world. Her altar and her statue were carved from a meteorite that struck nearby. So they thought it had all kinds of magical, godlike powers to it. They employed this temple of Artemis, thousands of slaves and eunuchs and prostitutes. It was a sanctuary temple. You know what that means, a sanctuary temple? It means that... If you were a criminal, regardless of what you your crime was, all you've got to do is get within one bow shot of that temple. You know, an, a bow and arrow that's 200 yards, and if you could get within one bow shot of that temple, you were protected. You could not be. Um, brought to justice for your crimes so an entire village of criminals sprang up right outside the grounds of this temple which is why one of its greatest philosophers Heraclitus reportedly said that the people that live in Ephesus were only fit to be drowned they were so wicked Not only did uh, criminals prosper in Ephesus, so did the artists and the artisans and the metal workers who made the charms of Artemis, the sale of which was fueled by this story. See, the story was that this wrestler in the, uh, the games, wrestled with one of these charms tied around his ankle and he went undefeated his entire career. So it fueled the sale of these charms. More money than you can imagine flowed into, our, our, uh, into Ephesus because of these magic charms. Now, interestingly, sorcery and drugs in the ancient world went hand in hand. Did you know that? Well, I'll say it again. Sorcery and drugs went hand in hand. Now, if you know anybody or if you are struggling with drugs, there's something that you need to know. And I'm going to explain it to you. So I want your ears open. I want you to hear this. The book of Revelation declares that in the end, unbelievers who will not repent... Well, they will not repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immorality or their thefts. Now, that word in Revelation and in other places in the Bible is translated from the word you see on the screen, pharmakeia. That's the word that gives us pharmacy, drugstore. And the word originally referred to medicines in general, but it became a word that was used primarily of mood and mind-altering drugs. They had opium, they had hemp, they had marijuana, all the way back to thousands of years before Christ came. They had all kinds of drugs, and this word began to be the word to refer to those kinds of drugs. And they were used in occult practices to communicate with supposed deities which were nothing more than demons. Greek writers like Aristotle used the word as a synonym, pharmakeia, for black magic and witchcraft. Now, I want you to hear something because in this day and age, even people in the church, even people in the church Think it's okay to smoke marijuana, okay to take drugs. I had these conversations not infrequently and I'm going to tell you you've heard of gateway drugs but do you know that mind and mood altering drugs can be gateways for demonic influence and activities in your life you go under the influence of a drug and there is a portal that begins to open for the possibility of demonic work in you and it's always been this way so it's into this dark city that Paul plants a church that would go on to plant several more churches. Now, let me, let me t- say something really quickly. You remember in Revelation, there's seven churches that Jesus Christ speaks to. Ephesus planted them all. In other words, all six of those came out of the first one, Ephesus, and they're all through Asia Minor, which is again, Western Turkey today. So now here's what Jesus says. Look in the Bible again. That was all introduction to this church. And Jesus had some positive things to say to them. And here's his commendation. He said, I know your works, your toil and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. So here we go. We got a commendation from Jesus to this church, and it's time, my friends, to put us in the lens as well. Because is this what Jesus is saying of you or me? Well, here's what they were they are a hard-working church. All hands were on deck, all serving God, all serving each other. In fact, the words hard work refer to work that is exhausting, That you, it, it is labor that makes you sweat. So the Christians in the church of Ephesus, listen, they left nothing in reserve. They gave, they gave all their energies to serving God because church is not a place for the lazy or for spectators or for those who are on the sidelines to the bench. Now, somebody invariably, I would imagine, is sitting here going, well, you know, I'm, I'm not really a member of this church or I'm too young. One day I'll get involved. Well, let me remind you and let me encourage you and let me admonish you that the day to get involved in your church is today, not when you get older, not when you get coming more frequently, you get coming more frequently and get involved. So in other words, it's inexcusable for any Christian, whatever church you go to, to just be a consumer. See, a consumer is one that's always buying and using the products that are being offered. And there is no room for consumerism in the church. In fact, God right now, by the Holy Spirit, if that is you and if your ears are open, you ought to be hearing, you're a consumer and that is not pleasing to me. I have no commendation for you. This is serious. The church left it all on the field, they were tired, but look what it says, they had not grown weary. That phrase means they had not gotten to the point where they were giving up. They were watching out for false teachers, putting these teachers to the test, enduring persecution. The church hated, look at verse six, the works of the Nicolaitans, and Jesus says, which I also hate. They're not really known what the, what the Nicolaitans were. Nobody really knows what they were, yet Jesus and the church at Ephesus despised their lifestyles, their teaching, So friends, we've got this church that is a commendable church, hardworking, discerning false teaching, enduring persecution, all for the sake of the name of Jesus, the glory of Jesus, who wouldn't be happy to be part of that church. You would want to attend the church at Ephesus. However, point number two is this. Jesus gave a criticism to this church in verse four. But I have this against you. Now stop for a moment. Friends, can you agree with me? We really don't want to hear that Jesus has something against us. That is not a good message to hear. That means there's something extremely wrong in us and it needs to be corrected. But I have this against you, verse 4, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Now, what does that actually mean? Well, there's two possible meanings. I'm going to skip to the end and tell you I think it's both. But here's the first possibility. It could mean that the enthusiasm they originally had for Christ was gone. Christian, And I don't want to take for granted that everybody here or listening online is a believer. If you have put your faith that God will forgive you of your sins through the death, burial, resurrection of Christ, then you are a believer, you've been saved. That's the only way you can be saved. Your good works will not save you. Your effort to be better than who you used to were be and cleaning up your act will not save you. It will not gain you any favor from God. God really doesn't want you to try to be good. Did you hear that? Because that sounds wrong. God doesn't want you or me to try to be good. You cannot be good in and of your own efforts. It is only through faith in Jesus that he makes you righteous. So the way to be good, the way to be righteous is simply to trust in the death, burial, and resurrection of God. And when they were saved, they were on fire for Jesus. And maybe, Christian, you can think back to when you first got saved and everything was new and you were excited. You wanted nothing but to serve God with every bit of your life. After all, God once said to backslidden Israel in Jeremiah 2, I remember the devotion of your youth, your love as a bride. If God says to Israel, I remember when you used to be devoted, when you used to love me like a newlywed, then that means Israel wasn't loving God like that. They didn't have devotion for God any longer. They had left their first love. See, the love you had at first, verse 4, is the new passionate love of the newlyweds. Do you remember when you were first saved? I want you to think about it again, that fervency, that on-fire-for-Christ-passion Does that still describe you months or years, even decades later? Do you still love God's word? Do you treasure knowing God through his word? Do you love to be with God in prayer? Your your entire soul panting for when you can get alone and just you and God, the intimacy that comes through prayer when your soul is at its most right place. Do you still love God like that? and for this church at Ephesus and maybe for some of us today love for God had waned but the second way that you might understand this and again I think it's both but the second one is Jesus may have meant that the love they had for each other in the church was gone you know I've often encouraged you and exhorted you to be more than just a friendly church. I still remember years ago when we had a gentleman come here and he told me this uh, on a motorcycle trip, actually. He said, you know, Tim, I almost um, never came back for a second visit when I came to Cornerstone and I was alarmed. And I said, why, what happened? I mean, I'm thinking that maybe I did something to offend him, that somebody didn't say hi to him and that we weren't friendly. You know what he said to me? said, when I came that first time to Cornerstone, everybody came up and started hugging me. Man, I said, I'm never going back to that church. It's too friendly. That's a good problem to have, isn't it? But you know, there's a big difference between a friendly church and a loving church. You know what a friendly church does? It stops at the exit door. You know what a loving church does? It goes through that door and pursues people out in the street. A friendly church says hi during the greeting time. A loving church says, hey, let's get together. I want to get to know you. That's a loving church. That's what they had abandoned at the church at Ephesus. And interestingly, our staff team has been trying to understand this problem that we're having at Cornerstone. And I've been in ministry for almost 30 years. In fact, yeah, it's almost 30 years. I've never seen quite this extent of this problem. We have one weekend, maybe 500 people coming to church. And then the following weekend, about 350 people coming to church. And then the next weekend, 400 people coming to church. And then the following week, I mean, it's all over the place. I've never seen it like this. And we've been trying to understand what is behind these radical swings in this attendance pattern. It's materialized since COVID. And I ran across a very insightful article. You see churches all over America are experiencing this inconsistent swing in attendance. I want you to think about this because people that would never miss are now coming maybe once or twice a month or not at all. And people who used to be deeply involved, even leaders of our church, aren't coming because of COVID fears, which I understand, but there's other ways to get involved in a church. There's a lot of ways to minister to people and they're utterly disinterested in it. What has happened? This article, which I reference in my notes and you can see it online, says that there are two problems that are facing churches since COVID. I'm only going to mention the second one and they called it, we now have mission over our maker mindset. Meaning, the author says, that the mission of reaching communities in order to regrow the church since COVID has become a greater priority than wonderfully, beautifully, simply loving and adoring our maker. In this danger, God now becomes a means to an end. He becomes the means to grow your church, which is the language of idolatry, which is why A.W. Tozer said, God wants worshipers before workers. God wants worshipers before workers. You see, this is nothing new in churches as 2,000 years ago This church at Ephesus began to focus more on doing over being, mission over maker, work over worship. This has always dogged churches throughout history. Gone was loving God with all your your heart. Gone was loving your neighbors yourself. And without love, hard work becomes joyless legalism and duty rather than delight. It's a deadly spiritual cancer In a church and it warranted a correction from Jesus now before we go to the third and final is that correction needing to come to you and I've been asking is it need to come to me do you really love God like a newlywed do you love God the way you loved him when you got saved do you love people and pursue people Do you adore God? Do you find prayer to be a point that you cannot wait to go in your day because there your soul is right? It does this word delight you. Well, he's not going to leave it at a criticism. Jesus never will. He's too good. He's too merciful, too gracious. So he goes to the third point. He gives a counsel to this church, verse five. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. This is a counsel. He commanded them to remember the great love they once had for God and others. And let's do that right now. Remember that love you used to have that made your heart sore when you were with God. Remember that. And if you've fallen away from that, well, here you go. Here's your counsel, my counsel, the church of Ephesus' counsel. Repent. Paul said, for this reason, he's saying this to this church, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints. They used to love. This used to be the hallmark of this church. They loved God. They had a rich faith in Jesus. They loved everybody in the church, but not anymore can you recall, friends, that moment in your life, that period of time in your life where you had a great affection for God and now you trudge along in spiritual dryness? Well, the correction that Jesus gives and the counsel that he gives to us has three commands. The first one is repent. What does that mean to repent? Well, let me, let me teach you something that I think is so applicably important. You see, to repent is to come to the realization that undoes me, drives me back to my knees in spiritual poverty, in humility, godly sorrow. It's that what I did when I sinned or where I am with God right now is more than just breaking God's rules, infinitely worse, I am breaking God's heart. Now listen, do you feel or do you view or do you see repentance along the gospel lines? It's not so much that you broke a rule when you sinned, a rule of God. It's infinitely worse. You have broken the heart of God who loves you. He weeps over you. And to repent is to realize that it drives us back to sorrow, godly sorrow, that leads us to repentance and repentance is the doorway back to God's blessings. It's followed by a changed life, one where we do the works we did at first, the Bible says in that text. We live out our love for God like we used to in the beginning. Now, I want you to hear something because this this cannot be softened. So let's do something really quickly and I'm not actually gonna be too much longer. I'm coming down to the end of this message. You cannot leave here and you cannot stop listening to this message the way you were when you started or when you came. There needs to be a movement. There needs to be a change in my life and in your life as we sit under the powerful word of God, amen? And that movement, that change will not come unless you heed carefully and soberly what Jesus is about to say to all of us. Verse five, if you do not repent of your cold, sterile, loveless life, He says, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. A church that loses her love for Christ and for one another is no longer a city set on a hill where the light of Christ can shine to the needy, dark world. That church is useless, that church is ineffective. That church does not display the character, love, and glory of Jesus. And Jesus says, I will not bless that church. In fact, I will remove my presence and my blessing from that church. Do you understand? that if we are no longer in love with God, if we no longer have the passion of the newness of our salvation, if we no longer pursue one another out in the streets and love one another, Jesus says very soberly, I will remove my lampstand. I will remove my presence. And you will shrivel into a cold, dark legalism. And that's exactly what happened with the church at Ephesus. So we must think soberly, and I'm gonna help you do that in the two or three minutes I've got to remain. Ask yourself, brother and sister, and it's gonna require honesty and courage. Do you really, truly love God Do you honestly have a consuming love for Jesus? And by that I don't mean do you have a friendly and appreciative and positive attitude toward God? That's not what I mean. I mean, do you love and view God like the groom loves and looks at his bride coming down the aisle on the day of their wedding? Do you have that excitement, that passion, that love for God? Do your thoughts return over and over to Jesus throughout the day? Is your greatest desire being with Jesus, talking with him throughout the day in prayer can an hour even pass without a deep longing to talk to God and express to him your love? If that is not you, then you got to remember when it was and repent because you are breaking the heart of God. Will you commit to call out to God along with the psalmist in 85 verse six? Will you not revive us again that your people may rejoice in you? Listen, do you need reviving? If that love is not in you and your heart is stone cold to God and to other people and this church or any church that you're part of is not really that treasured by you, it's obligatory, you don't find your soul loving worship with your brothers and sisters, then beg and plead and call for God to revive you again that you may rejoice in him. And let that renewed love well up from deep within you and spill over to people so that they can be loved like they have never been loved before. Now, listen to the final statement that I have. This is it. That kind of church, the church that remembers and repents and does what they ought, that has a love and a passion for God and a spillover to other people, that kind of church, Jesus says, I am home there. That's my church. I am home there. That is my church. Amen? Amen. Father, I pray, Lord, as we go back to one more song and Pastor Kyle facilitating us to an end. Lord, I pray, Lord, that we would indeed be revived. Lord, I want that revival in my life. I want us to cry out for that revival. Lord, so that we would delight in you again, like the newlyweds delight in each other. Lord, may we not lose our love for you. May it come back in a burning desire. Father, I pray for that. I ask for your help with that. And Lord, we trust you for that. And Lord, for the rest of this evening and the few minutes that we have, may we reflect deeply. Do we really passionately, thoroughly love you? And do we pursue people out into the streets? In Jesus' name. Amen.